All right. So Kathleen, thank you so much. We finally made this happen. Thank you for having me. And you are calling in from Pennsylvania? Yes, I'm a Northeast PA girl. So I'm a little familiar with the state. Where are you in the state? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I'm by the Hazleton area. I'm in one of those little teeny tiny towns around it. Pennsylvania is full of like teeny tiny little coal miner towns. Yes. Um, Yes. (laughs) So I I actually, I live in Freeland, Pennsylvania. Um, And, uh, but my family uh, originally came from New York. Um, So I have a lot of New York flavor in my life. And Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, I'm a graphic designer turned fiction writer, uh, kind of by accident. It's actually a pretty big state. Like I've actually never been to Pittsburgh and. Oh my God. I've been to Pittsburgh. (laughs) (laughs) Dang girl. Like it's like four hours from me. So it's a commitment. Um, oh, you are so East coast. I know. Oh my gosh. Oh, you're like, that's like European. Really? No, seriously. East coast people, (laughs) Europeans are like, you know, oh, I have to drive four hours. Oh, and I'm like, yeah, like I did that last weekend. I know. We're all like in our little, my sister lives 20 minutes away from me and she's like, oh, I have to drive down this weekend. And I'm oh. like, even that feels far. I don't, there's something about the roads, man. Well, I'm now, I don't well, know now, like maybe it's because you're growing up around, you know, horses and buggies. And so it puts everything in context. <laughs> maybe. Seriously. Well, Amish at heart. So we come from. Oh my gosh, that is so funny. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Like I've been up in California. I live in Seattle. But, you know, West Coasties, we drive. What can I say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, then. All right, cool. So, um, yeah. So thank you for grounding us a little bit in who you are and what you do. And let's see here. Folks, I asked Kathleen to join me on the show because, okay, a couple of reasons. First, she's really fun on Twitter. Um, second, because you fairly quickly in like a couple of years were like, I think I'm going to become a novelist. And then you were. And you not only are that, but you landed a five book deal. So yes, fellow writers out there, we are going to pick Kathleen's brains and try to figure out some tips and ideas on how to make that a success that many of us can have. So like, seriously, otherworldly series. Wow. How long were you thinking about this? Oh, well, um, the story concept actually started when I was 12 and I was bored. I actually, I think if my whole life revolved around movies and the years of like from like 2001 to about 2004 if you look at like the kind of movies that came out they were terrible so I had nothing to really kind of entertain myself with (laughs) and it just kind of kept rolling around my head for years and years and I kept adding to it and changing I think goodness it changed because I can imagine the 12 year old version of it was terrible um or excellent for 12 year olds (laughs) <laughs> I can remember little snippets and I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, so uh, it was when it, I went to college for um, graphic design and had all the intentions of making it into a webcomic. And I had a couple pages uh-huh. done and lost steam. And um, I actually had something happen to me um, after I graduated. And I was working a series of disastrous office jobs. Um, uh, I my insurance got dropped. I had to get off a certain medication and a depression lifted that I didn't even know I had. And literally about two or three days later, I'm like, I need a, I need a pen and a notepad. I have a story. I have to write now. Wow. And, and I think I might've 
I've written the first draft in maybe a month under or something. It just popped into existence. (laughs) Yeah. So, so you had an unexpected event that caused you to have to give up on a medication, which you Mm -hmm. then realized had actually been inhibiting you. Yes. Yeah. I I had no idea. I had other events going on. Like I had just graduated college. I couldn't find a graphic design job. Things Mm -hmm. were stressful. And I just assumed it was that. But, um, and I was even very upset. I was like, oh, I have to change medications. And then I, I realized, I didn't realize it was making me depressed until I was like, I feel like a completely different person and I have all this energy and I am creative. And it just came all, all came back and I was really happy. Oh, I'm really happy to hear that. That's yay. <laughs> and now we all get to benefit because honestly, I mean, you know, standalones, I'm actually interviewing someone um, who's written a standalone in a couple of weeks, and that's fine. I forgive her in advance. <laughs> but, you know, and then you have a duology, which just sort of like, you're like, oh, you get this pain in your chest because you know at the end of a second book, you're just going to be so sad. There's not more trilogies. You start to feel a little bit better. But, you know, five book series, someone can really feel like, oh, I can invest myself because you are investing as well. And we're going to be together for a while. And so this is exciting. Mm-hmm. When you were querying your, and let's see, otherworldly is sort of the term for your series. And mm-hmm. so when you were querying this, did you query it as, hey, I've got five books, which sort of goes against all the advice out there? Or were you <laughs> querying it as book one? And by the way, I'll barely mention I have some other books. How did you do that? Well, I I believe when I, I queried um, with actual agents, um, we'll get back we'll get back into the actual publishing side because that happened really oddball off the way too. Cool. Um, I I think I, I pitched it as a trilogy. It it was supposed to be a trilogy in my head for the longest time it was, but the uh, the first first book is very kind of cut and dry. It it could be a standalone thing if needed. But I set up a lot of questions that you'd be like, wait a minute, you didn't explain. Right. So uh, the second and third installments didn't follow a traditional plot. Um, they had like multiple different climaxes and it was just very information heavy. So once I started talking to my actual publisher, they uh, were very kind of honest with me. And they said, like, does this have potential for more books? And I got the impression that they actually wanted more. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, are you, are you sure? Because I get had <laughs> read like the, you know, the research about like, don't push for it too much at at once right um but plot wise i'm so glad i cut them i got like books two and three into like two three four and five and it right. works so much better for the plot sure i think that probably one of the big exciting secrets that a lot of early writers don't know about is that um there can be a lot of joy Rather than just killing your babies, which, sorry, folks, we don't actually mean that. It means, you know, your darlings, whatever. It's like things that you fell in love with that that you think are just really great and have to be in the story and people are trying to convince you to remove it. So it's called killing Mm -hmm. your babies. But um, I think that a lot of people have this impression that there will be this painful experience of having to go through that. But for me personally, I have found that sometimes changing something after you've been working on, on a draft multiple times for many years, actually is very freeing and very exciting and very inspirational and very wonderful. So mm-hmm. it sounds like for you, 
you know, instead of them saying, hi, I want you to change everything, and you went home and sobbed into your pillow, instead you're <laughs> like, oh, really, can I? That's awesome. Is that true? Yeah. Yes. Um, it was, I was like, very timid about what steps I should take for it because I knew in my heart, I'm like, this is going to be a long book. And even just the physical, like if it's printed, I'm like, that spine's going to get funny because it's going to be too thick. <laughs> um, right, right, so I knew right. there was something slightly wrong, but I didn't know how to do it until like they kind of gave me permission to be like, you know, maybe we should break up the books. And even then I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. And um I'm always surprised about maybe if you have a hole in your plot or something, or you have to change a scene and you're really apprehensive about doing it, just write it. And if it's, it's garbage, just throw it away and try again. But sometimes just writing it, you'll take a break, come back to it. And you're like, that works so much better than I thought originally. And it's such a gift. It's so nice. Right. Which, which uh, someone recently, I don't know. Well, you've heard of the manuscript Academy. I haven't. I've already done Oh my gosh. Okay. Check them out. I'm a newbie. I'm sorry. I know. I know. So am I. So am I to a degree. So I listen to their podcast when I'm out on walks. I just throw Mm -hmm. on my headset and off I go. And the most recent one was this woman who made this comment. She said, don't ever throw anything away. She creates an outtake folder. That's what she calls it. Right. And she says, like you just mentioned, you know, something's total crap, you know, toss it, but toss it into the outtake folder. And then later, you know, when it comes back to you, you go, oh, part of, you know, so I think that for like, she has like 41 books published. So this woman has been doing this for a while and she has an outtake folder for each book. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a great idea. That's actually very good because what I'm I'm realizing with this uh, series, um, I I had written the first book, um, had my son. And um, while I like the first couple months, you know, it's always rough. Um, I couldn't write. I just physically didn't have it in me, but my brain was going wild and I ended up making so many concepts that I am so excited to get to once this series is underway. Mm -hmm. But um, most of those concepts are a little bit of like a seed I tried out in the series and decided it didn't work. And I put it away somewhere like mentally or filed it away. Mm -hmm. And so I find it very interesting to hear it um, often where like, um, one movie was a concept from another movie and it didn't work and then someone picked it up again and it turned right. into something different. And yeah, yeah definitely uh, recycle your ideas. It's a good time. Well, and you're lucky that you're young enough to be able to actually, as you said, store them away in your thoughts. I'm like, yeah, no. If I've gone 48 seconds without writing it down, whoo, that sucker's gone. <laughs> so for, for others of us, you know, we'll write it down, but you, you just go on memorizing it. Okay. So <laughs> the, the value of being youthful. Ah, all right. Oh, it's only um, selective. Trust me. I don't, I once found my, I couldn't find my phone forever and I found it in the fridge. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's only with like, usually with plots. My mom calls me up for like, what, what happened in this one specific movie in like 1975? And I'm like, oh, I know the plot exactly, but I can't tell you what I had for breakfast, things like that. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I totally get it. Okay. So Otherworldly, five books. Um, the current one is being played around with. Titles are not not you know carved into stone yet. You're talking about the skeleton key as a title for book one. Um, yes. What can you tell us about your story that is not going to uh, get you in trouble? Um, or um, I mean, because I'm actually curious. What I mean by that is not just spoiler alert. What I mean is, as an author who has contracted with 
an agent with editor with publisher and all that what type of rules might come into play with regard to you know don't send it out to beta readers anymore we don't want it out there in the ethos or don't talk about this you think you know like um actors when they're being interviewed and they'll suddenly throw their hand on their mouth because they mentioned something about a pirates of the caribbean you know movie going to be launched and everyone's staring at them like you just broke a massive contract um what what limits may or may not be out there um, they did tell me to stop beta reading because when we were deciding the deadlines, I was like, oh my goodness, do I have to factor in like the betas to read it? Because, you know, that could be like a, either a very quick process or that can take months. Right. Um, so they said uh, only for the, well, probably to to keep it, you know, contained. Mm-hmm. But uh, they wanted me to stop beta reading just so I can work exclusively with an editor who will know the story inside and out. Yes. Because sometimes, oh, oh, there's such an adventure of beta reading. And I did this all before, you know, I started querying and signed the contract where you'll hand it to one person. They'll go, oh, the first chapter works. And then you hand it to a second person. They're like, oh, it's completely garbage. Throw it away. And I'm like, oh. I know. What do you do with that? Oh. What you do is you go with your gut instinct and then just in, instinct. Sorry. Yes. You go with your gut instincts and then. Uh, you know, maybe they'll be right later on. And if not, you just move on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Totally get that. All right, Mm -hmm. cool. So then what can you tell us about this story? Mm -hmm. Shall I read the blurb? Sure. Go for it. I'm going to, I'm going to be official about it. Yes. For 21 years, Rain Parker's biggest problem were deciding which cooking shows to watch and how to best avoid her cold corporate mother in their chic Manhattan apartment. A privileged daughter of New York's elite, Rain is hardly the person to depend on in a crisis. When the purchase of a rusted old thimble sends her hurtling into an alternate realm, Rain is forced to find and release a deadly monster. Should she fail, she'll meet the sticky end at the hands of a sadistic witch with secrets of her own. Tiptoeing the line between enchanted and disturbed, Rain must fight her way through a hostile land filled with magic, intrigue, and a whole lot of bloodshed if she ever wants to find a way home again. That is, if there is a way. I really like that last part. Thank you. <laughs> All sorts of stuff is going on. And um, let's see, I, I was lucky enough that even though I'm not a beta reader for you, you got permission mm-hmm. for me to see like the first few chapters. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that blurb makes it feel almost like it's um what's the word for it not uh what's the word we use when we're describing um fairy tale slash fantasy-esque you know it it has a sort of a feeling like that and yet you know of course you start in that fancy apartment and i think Mm -hmm. it's so fascinating how her she doesn't call her mom mom no you know, and and so let's delve in a little bit to some of the the relevancy that the story is going to have for readers. The the issues that are human that are occurring in the real world right now that come into your story. There's all the fun fantasy stuff you've created. That's great, but mm-hmm. functionally, you have themes that are deeply human. Oh yeah. So sure. do these do these topics, do they attract you because you've seen them in other places? Do you have personal experience with these things? I suppose I started writing it because um, my, my, I talk about my husband all the time, but he is he has a lot of friction in his family. And 
I had a, um, a post that I have a very nurturing family and mm. coming together, I'm, I'm working out some issues that I empathize with him with and I, I ended up in the story somehow. When I, when I first started to uh, create this story, I thought it would be new adult. It turns out it's, it's totally an adult story, but I thought it would be new adult for the reasons that new adult kind of is geared towards uh, uh, very, well, um, adult to about 18 to 25 who are leaving home and finding their home life. So, yeah, college age. Yeah. yeah. Um, so she's at that cusp where she actually has a very friction-filled uh, relationship with her mother, but she's also trying to find herself. And it's also uh, made doubly hard because she was raised by her grandmother who had died, and she's uh, mm. at home with the mother who doesn't really understand her. So she's wants to disconnect and it's a very scary thing for her so she's right on the cusp of being independent Mm -hmm. and these are obviously themes that a lot of people can relate to it's a challenging time i remember when my kids were um early teenagers talking to my um my stepmother who used to do like youth counseling and she's a, a life coach and she's really amazing and and i remember her saying well now i just want you to know that that, you know, you think it's tough right now, your kid's 13, 14, whatever. And she's like, but you know, you know, you could have to make it to the late 20s here, honey. (laughs) She's like, you know, it's not like they hit 18, 19, it's all smooth sailing. She's like, especially for boys, you know, but I think for everyone, those early 20s to mid 20s, those are massively um, important period of time. And yet it's interesting because at the same time, when so much is going on, it's going on in the absence of the parents because that's actually how the child is able to fully reach out and and grip onto their own life because, you know, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, new adult, boy, that I sort of, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about having more genres that split up the ages or not, but I do wish new adult was a um, maybe a little bit more empowered and not faltering so much because... Um, what a powerful time. We shouldn't be ignoring this incredibly powerful time in life. Certainly. And uh, I think part of me uh, like uh, tipped it into adult just because the characters grow throughout the series. Mm-hmm. Um, it does It does continue to have those themes of growing and finding yourself, not just for Rain, the main character, but there's a secondary character named Hollow who has similar struggles where he's also trying to find out where he fits in this world. And I, it's... It's exciting. And maybe it's also continues to be an adult problem too, because he hasn't had to step back and like had to question, is this the career I want? Am I on the right path? So maybe it's a a distinctive all around, not just adult issue, but human. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, oh my gosh, absolutely. And um, so let's see here. You said that there were some, most of us have events in our own life that sort of inspire us. And Mm -hmm. you were starting to think about the story back when you were 12, but, Mm -hmm. um, but you were interested in doing graphic design. You are very artistic. And then somehow you sort of intentionally segued over to focusing on the story. Mm -hmm. Um, and now you've got a child. There are so much going on in your life right now. It's a very busy period for you, isn't it? I am very busy. (laughs) That's very true. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very exciting. And I'm realizing what, what, what's exciting for me is as I, I have a, a two-year-old and I'm starting to introduce him to all kinds of like old movies that I really loved. And I'm realizing how those old movies impacted my work. 
And I'm like, oh, there's so much from Return to Oz in this series. It's not even funny. That's a, that's, I forgot the question. I'm so sorry. No, I didn't pause either. (laughs) Just, the question wasn't actually very clear. It was more like (laughs) just a general conversational point. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so there is a lot going on. You've had inspiration for this story coming out Mm -hmm. of your own life events. And Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about the theme of superior people and outcasts, that sort of whole othering issue, Mm -hmm. classism, so on and so forth. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, well, um, within the series, it's it's set up so the um, the human race in this fantasy world is superior um, due to a war. They kind of rose above the rest, and there are numerous other races of uh, supernatural creatures, just collectively known as others. And um, our main character is human, so she goes to this world and where she, if she's so inclined, could be a part of that superior race, but um, the people she ends up knowing and loving and um, creating relationships with are these supernatural beings. And she begins to look at the idiocy of prejudice. And I I suppose the series, um, it not only like uh, calls out the, the faults in that system, but if you're a part of that system and you're benefiting from it, are you, is it harmful and what do you, what do you intend to do about it? Mm-hmm. So that's a big theme of the series. All of that ties in extraordinarily well in the United States of America with the Black Lives Matter movement. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, is it good enough to just say, I'm not being mean to people or do, you know, do we recognize our white privilege? Do we do something actively and intentionally to um, correct you know, the lack of white privilege that people who aren't white live with, you know? Yeah, there's a lot, lot packed in there. I'm so excited to get to meet these different people. You you refer to some of them as um, monsters? Well, some are uh, a little on the physical side as monsters. Some look completely human, um, just collectively known as, as others. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And this is in the other world. So it's like you've got this Mm -hmm. duology between you've got this normal human world and then there's that, you know, Alice falls down the rabbit hole and lands in the other world. Yes, there's an alternate alternate world and there's discussions of multiple, you know, like universes, so to speak, and realms. Um, It's just multiple layers. And if you get into like the metaphys of it, it's so it's so exciting. I love that aspect of things. Right. I know like people who write sci-fi people, a lot of people who read sci-fi might think that it just comes out of pure imagination. But a lot of sci-fi comes. It's just an extenuation of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We take the real and then we go with it. Yeah. But I think I've taken this series kind of unintentionally uh, used it to talk about um, issues that have always bugged me. For instance, when I was in high school, I had these this uh, lovely group of friends who were so talented and beautiful, but I did notice they were very harshly bullied. Mm. Um, no more so, like, I, I never even really saw the bullying. They would just tell me about what had happened or who's picking on them. And mm-hmm. I've come to realize it would never happen to me. And it would never um, happen in front of me. And I couldn't figure it out until I realized, you know, they had nothing 
really to pick on me about. And that is a privilege that was like heaped onto me. And it made me very angry and uncomfortable because I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, if you're going to pick on odd kids, pick on me, I'm very weird. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And then it would give me an excuse to engage and find a solution. And I, it was always very troubling to me because I, I felt like, I'm like, if you're going to pick on everyone, pick on everyone. Um, right. And then I get to realize, I grew up and I realized it's because of like, you know, there is like a privilege of it. I suppose it's a white privilege and what to do with that heaped on top of me. And it, it makes me very uncomfortable. And um, I wrote a story about that again. And sometimes it's hard to look at this issue without having the story turn into a white savior story. Mm -hmm. That's something I play very close attention to and hopefully, you know, steer away from because there's so many other characters in here that uh, rise above and not to simplify a situation uh, based on prejudice, um, but rather explore it. And it's a backdrop for a more character driven series, but it's still an important issue. Oh yeah, no. I mean, that's ugh. it's so mm -hmm. challenging right now. There's, there's, mm -hmm. it's, there's so much change going on, and recalibrating and adjustment. So I, I just appreciate that you're aware of all that and you're doing your best to try to be conscious and actively um, engaged in, um, yeah. It's, yeah it's heavy. It's heavy. yeah yeah the problem is you, there's not even like a settled you know new way of doing things yet there's still things are filtering around and adjusting and being discussed and so the beauty is that in the midst of all that you have awareness of self awareness of others awareness of the community and you're being as aware and then sensitive and cautious and thoughtful as you can be and that's that's all we can really ask of people right now and um, I think a lot of a lot of writers are are facing that and trying to figure mm -hmm. out how do you how do you adjust so that you are a force for um, good, change. so to speak, change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Sure, definitely. And I felt like a, the need to write the story because I know there's other people struggling with the same thing. Like not only the oppressed, but the people who are um, higher up in like. I don't want to say the food chain, but I mean, mm -hmm. like this, this hierarchy that is created around us. Um, what do you do with that? Mm -hmm. And it, it, there's like, I feel like there's two paths where you can turn a blind eye and just kind of enjoy where you are and not like risk losing your, your place. Or you can call people on their BS and tr try to inspire change, try to mm -hmm. inspire like others to not sit blindly by when bad things, social, um, social things are happening. And I think that's a, a big movement now. It's why everyone's a little touchy on things on Twitter of what you can say and what you can't say. And um, I think it all comes down to, you just don't want to hurt anyone. You want to create create a story that will inspire, but you don't want to hurt anyone in the process. Right. That's my take on that. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. I know. Yeah. I mean, this is why <laughs> fiction is... You know, you can have a nonfiction book that is, you know, title, front covers, really, really upfront in your face. Here's what we're going to talk about, you know, classism, bigotry, blah, blah, blah. And mm -hmm. and that can be very informative and very illuminating. 
and it can really affect your mind and change your knowledge base. Um, Mm -hmm. But even if it affects your heart, even if it can create some empathy, it's not the same as a fictional story that puts you in the shoes of a person and you literally walk their path and experience Mm -hmm. it yourself. That's where I think fiction has this beautiful ability to affect the heart. And when your heart is affected, we see this with people like Angelina Jolie or perhaps even Madonna or other people whose whose names are not coming to mind, but whoever's listening right now might be thinking of some famous person who happened to expose themselves to the painful realities that are all over this planet. And once you walk there and hold people's hands and hug them and talk to them, the idea of getting on your airplane and flying back to your comfortable home and just knowing you're leaving these people in in these horrible conditions, that you can't escape that heart effect. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we, yeah, right. And I hope Mm -hmm. your story will do that for your readers, create a heart effect. Oh, so sweet. Yes, I am. I definitely take fiction to heart a lot, a lot. Because I would say a lot more than like the the real world. Sometimes the real world is so much harsher than if you were to, I think we go to a lot of fantasy to escape. And if mm-hmm. we can learn at the same time, it's like, whoo, that's good too. Because right. um, I, I I know um, I, I have a problem with this. I think my father did in the past too with, um, uh, with certain truths that are just too hard to look at. And so you create a story around it and it makes it softer. Like this, the core is still there. But the story is to kind of cushion the, the really hard parts. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, <laughs> I know. And that's, that's an example of how story can, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yep, yep. Humans, brains, hearts, stories. We're interesting creatures. Mm. <laughs> I think that pretty much sums it up. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's yeah. humans yeah, in a bottle. Really you got to be there. <laughs> Oh, right. Exactly. I think what you're saying is this, you know, it's not always good enough to know something's going on. There's really, um, the question is, what are you going to do about it? Uh, Joan Baez as my quote on my email, which is action is the antidote to despair. Sure. I love that quote. It's lovely. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit. We're going to go sideways folks, because there's apparently this, um, I'll call it a genre, um, that's sort of <laughs> booming right now, gaining some enthusiasm. And I think it's really intriguing. It's uh, apparently called monster romance. (laughs) Listen, what would you call that? You've got rom-com, which is a romantic comedy. Monster romance is like, um, (laughs) mon-rom. Mon-rom. We'll we'll coin that here. Mon-rom. Mon-rom. terrible. (laughs) No, no. I love it. I love it. It's a mon-rom. It's totally there. See? Okay. One day. We will be the people who coined that term. All right. So tell us a little bit about Ron Mons. No, I did it wrong. Ron Mom. Ma. Okay, you're right. It sucks. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. You're making me laugh. All right. Okay, monster okay, romance. So tell monster. our listeners or talk a little bit about sort of what that is and, and why people are drawn to that. Okay. Well, um, it might not be surprising with all the success surrounding uh, The Shape of Water, which is oh, one of my favorite movies. It's so good. Yeah. Um, so with a story with supernatural creatures and a human girl, obviously, you know, one of the love interests is going to it's going to be a monster. And um, oh, boy, is he ever one. So, yes, I think. Yeah. 
um, there's a part of me that's always been able to empathize with the bad guy that is not the um, the typical bad guy in the sense doing bad things, just the bad guy that is looks like a monster, but maybe that's his only aspect. With a lot of uh, stories pa- back in the day, 80s, 90s, you know, sometimes you were just presented with a bad guy who's just a monster and that's it. Yeah. And I found it, I could empathize with that creature, even though I wasn't supposed to. And so now we're, we're this generation has grown up and started to really look at that archetype of the classic Hollywood horror monster and flip that genre on its head. Cause it was usually a monster pitted against a classic American hero. Mm-hmm. And if you empathize with the other in society or just you feel like a monster yourself, you're going to like look at that monster differently and look at that classic hero differently. And um, there's something very interesting going on where, you know, you'll watch the beauty and the beast and you don't want that beast to turn into a human. You love him for just the, the crazy hairy person he is. Right. And- that's, well, I think it's before the movement. <laughs> no, I think that's such a great point. I mean, you know, one of the worst things about um, Frankenstein, mm-hmm. you know, is that I hate that story. <laughs> I, I understand that it was, you know, for people who don't know, it's written by a woman, actually. Mm-hmm. And there's a fabulous story behind the writing. And it was written at a time when electricity was really being discovered and people had figured out that you could take like a dead frog leg and if you put electricity into it, the leg would move. And so, you know, science was playing with this. And so, of course, you get this idea of put a bunch of body parts together and yay, you create Frankenstein. And Frankenstein's mm-hmm. actually the name of the doctor. Dr. Frankenstein yeah. creates the monster. I think most mm-hmm. people in America think that Frankenstein's actually the monster. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know. From the movies, it's what you get. But mm-hmm. I have always hated it so much because all I have is massive empathy for the monster who's Mm -hmm. been, you know, I feel bad for the monster. And then I feel angry that the monster is, is just inevitably portrayed as, you know, um, violent and harmful. And then of course, all the people in the town hate him and, oh, I, I hate the story. It really makes me emotionally unhappy for all of those reasons of how this stereotypic you know, way of people responding, which is probably the whole point of the darn story. So I'm sure it was very successful if I am that uncomfortable. But I think what you're saying is that people are like, we don't want that cut and dry, black and white, right and wrong, good and evil story. We want, what do we want? I think especially in fiction, we are very drawn to empathizing with characters and putting ourselves in the, in the, their shoes and for that you really need to connect with them and if you can have that emotional connection that character could be anything it could be a spoon you know you'd be <laughs> like i love you spoon it's fine um so if there's something so exciting and, and fun for me about like monster romance because it mixes like my my two favorite like uh, descriptors of a bad boy with an underdog and mm. it's, it's so much fun and you can uh, recreate so many different monsters. You can pull from the ancient Greeks and lore, or you can make something completely, um, you know, unique and give it the attributes you think it should have. And um, I, we've we've been building up to this, I, I believe, with um, mm-hmm. with starting with the 
classic horror films and then Beauty and the Beast and The Shape of Water. And then I think it's it's okay to crush on a monster, so to speak, in fiction. And right. a lot of people are drawn to that. Well, you've got Damon Salvatore. Damon Salvatore. And The Vampire Diaries. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. If you haven't watched that, it's a, you can watch it as a series. It was written as a book. The books are not worth my time. I tried. <laughs> I think I got through the first chapter and I went, oh, oh, thank goodness they turned this into a video series. Oh because the video series, which is available on um, Netflix, is amazing. But Damon Salvatore is like exactly what you said. The mm-hmm. What did you say? Bad boy... Well, I was underdog. making notes before and I realized they are the, it's a perfect mix of bad boy and underdog. Yeah. Everyone loves an underdog, but they also like something that's a little dangerous, yeah. but safe. It's very yeah. interesting. I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, trying to write this stuff is challenging. Is there mm-hmm. any element of this in, in your books that you're trying to work on? Are you trying to create any of this? Monster, I'm not going to say Mon Rom ever again. Okay, whether you had any monster romance characters that were actually showing up in your story, because I actually didn't want to assume that they were. I was like, well, just because you love that doesn't mean it's in your story. Oh, it's in there. <gasps> okay, fun, fun. Go, go. It is. Um, I find actually with uh, the stories I plan to create in the future, I, I seem to kind of keep creating these scenarios where the supernatural creature and a human woman is just, it's just my favorite pairing. And I keep seeing, I, I keep going back to that. Yeah. But yes, um, without, there is a bit of a spoiler with um, the monster in the first book. So I can't get into too much no, detail. No, no, um, don't do that. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but her um, her love interest is, uh, in fact, one of these others, and I I um, I definitely created a, a character that would typically be a villain, and not only like well, not so much emotionally, or and he does have some flaws, good flaws. You know, you need some flaws in there, right? Um, but physically, I, I've definitely um, had beta readers who are afraid of him, and. Uh, I for some, it, I love that. Yes. <laughs> so I feel like it's okay. And then you have the visual component, what he looks like in your head. And if you can blast past that and see what my main character will eventually see, mm-hmm. it, it makes it all the more interesting. And then you, it's another form of their relationship that they have to overcome mm-hmm. as opposed to just all the ups and downs of a typical relationship. Well, you know, if you think about it, it's sort of like everyone is dangerous. Anyone can end up being, I've been watching Criminal Minds lately, you know, anyone can end up being a serial killer, you know? And so functionally, what really is like one of the primary necessary ingredients for love? And I think that it's trust and it's a trust that is so so strong that you are willing to open up and beat your most vulnerable with someone. So in a way, in in writing fiction, a lot of times you you want your stories to not be like humdrum, normal, everything's cool. You want the sort of up and down, you know, attention. And so if you make your character particularly hard to trust and particularly scary, then when the other character actually chooses to trust them, that's like really powerful. Mm-hmm. I I hopefully I, I think I achieved it in this very interesting way where when they once they finally meet she's gone through the ringer she's 
gone through so much stuff that she doesn't even really kind of so much bat an eye at him. She's like, all right, let's go. Um, ah, that makes sense. Right. Because <laughs> if, if she were wasn't un- was unconditioned and instantly would have met him, that would right. have made things a little harder to trust. So she's like, so, oh, one more monster, whatever. Five yeah, more flaws. It's a up. Yeah, it's a build up for it. Okay, well, that's an interesting way to get around it, too. In a way, she's already started to lose the othering viewpoint. Mm-hmm. It's like the preconceived notion of what is dangerous versus what is what what looks dangerous and what is actually fine. Because ironically, in the story, a lot of the villains are human and they look yeah. totally fine and they're not. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's that's a fun thing to play with. I'm big on contrasts, both in art yeah. and like writing. So it it's fun for me to create some. Uh, I have a character later in the series who is enormous and based on oh the samurai warrior um, uh, masks. Mm. I, I found them so beautiful, and I think they're based on oni, like their versions of demons. And to see something like that animated, and she's she's terrified. But he, in my brain, he sounds like. Um, Kelsey Grammer (laughs) and it's it's wonderful that's sort of like that's like spirited away yeah that oh one of my oh I watched that to death as a as a teen (laughs) well your child is going to be so lucky to be able to grow up on Hayao Miyazaki oh thank you he's um he loves it a little bit more than the typical Disney and I think it has to do with when there's quiet, calm moments in it, it's it's just rich with, oh, as je ne sais quoi, shall we speak? Yeah, um, it's hard to explain it, but anyone who's watched Hayao Miyazaki's work, it's just, you're absolutely right. There's, um, there is something mm-hmm. uniquely amazing about his work, and I don't even know how to label why it is so amazing, but it is it is powerful. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So um, let's see here. Do you feel any pressure from having five books in front of you that this publishing company expects you to produce? I had book one already and set to go. Book two was in kind of like disrepair. Books three, four, and five needed to be written within a couple of months. Mm. So ultimately I had about a year to get them all in order. And that's wow. fine. Yeah, it's it, it was okay. I, I probably, they asked me my opinion on the deadline and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So I might've cut it short. I, I thought I could get more done with a toddler. I goes to show how much I know myself. Huh. Um, well, you know, first time parenting. Yeah. Yeah. You, you learn along the way. And, and to be truthful, there's always that reminder for folks out there that what is it? Oh gosh. Someone was talking, it was once again, I think it was a podcast on the manuscript Academy. They're so great. And, mm-hmm. um, and someone was like, you know what? Never, ever, 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 ever. You know, I said that five million more times. Never, ever compare your rough draft to any person out there who, you know, their published work. They're like, you look at their published work and then you look at your rough draft and you moan and groan and pull your hair out because you see the discrepancy. But what you're not looking at is what their rough draft looked like. You know, when they submitted it to the publisher in, there were so many things that changed between that and when it actually hit print. So- if you are doing five books, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're expecting you to show up with like zero typos and, you know, everything's mm-hmm. perfect, right? 
What sure. are they looking yes. at? Like um, annual releases are you looking at? Uh, let's see. Um, from what they had told me, which like how we set up the deadline was book one will be, because they will establish a release date. When book one is released, we'll have book two ready for pre-order and so oh, on. Wow. And it should be like one after the other, after the other, like serial releases almost. Oh my so, goodness. Uh, basically the concept of if someone loves book one and thing and they really want to know about the series ideally they can probably order all of them which is you know in, interesting and very uh, practical in an age where binge watching and binge reading is very popular and i i totally get that i know it's super popular in the um self-published groups or community a lot of times that's talked about as having great value for keeping your audience building and growing um but you have a publisher you're not self-publishing so this publisher also wants to basically lean in on the the series approach yes yes um they they were the ones who encouraged the um maybe let's break, uh, split the, the books apart so it seems like series is mm -hmm. more of their better bread and butter which is which is nice it gives me work more work to do it also gives me leeway to not so much rush a story but take my time and develop it and see like um all these things i could do with each book no that makes of, a you know, lot of sense yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. You know, it's interesting because the Hunger Games trilogy, I really wish had been a four book series and I wasn't surprised that they made four movies. Mm -hmm. I felt like um, I, I found out about the Hunger Games and about Twilight and about Harry Potter. All of those series I like knew about and wasn't reading because I didn't think they were my type of thing. Mm -hmm. And with all of them, well, when the fourth book of Harry Potter had already been published, I went down to visit my mom and I saw them sitting on our bookshelf. I'm like, mom, you, what? This is like for kids. You know what's going on? She's like, oh, they're great. And I was there for a week and I binge read all four of them while I was there for the week, right? And mm -hmm. I, and, but it was so nice because I got to binge read all four. And mm -hmm. I remember thinking, yeah, so it, it, you're right. If you really get into something and you don't have to wait 18 months for the next book and the next book and the next book. That's a benefit to the reader. It's very nice for the reader. Oh, yes. And it, it'll work um, marketing-wise as well because I think ultimately, you know, like, they, you know, you want to make, make, make a little cash. That would be yes. nice. Um, so yes. If you can keep, if you can keep yourself in the reader's conscience, conscience, that's a hard word to say, in their mind. Yep. And be like, I want to know what's going to happen immediately. Then, you know, they're going to find out. And okay. I think that's very practical. Well, this is exciting. I was sort of, I was like, gosh, she's got five books. It's going to take like eight years to read those books. But <laughs> instead, <laughs> basically, at some point, well, the next time, because we're planning to do two interviews. This is a, a pre-release interview. And then we're going to do one at the other end when you've gone through the whole experience and sort of discuss it. So that's exciting. When we interview next time, I will actually be able to read all five books. It sounds like are close to if I'm interested. If you're interested. Yay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I will be. Um, <laughs> I, I like your voice. You said that some of your beta readers were surprised at how funny the story was, even though it's dealing with intense topics. Mm -hmm. Yes, I am. Um, I think, well, you know, I have a blurb and I, I had images to go along with them. Um, the manuscript I had to share to get 
feedback from beta readers. And I think when people think of high fantasy, even though it does have a contemporary feel, you know, it's it's hard not to go towards Tolkien and think about like serious epics and everything. Mm-hmm. But I think the the one foot you'll have in the real world opens this gateway to humor because, you know, fantasy is absurd and we love it for it. Um, so you have that that duality going on and I'm, I'm a quirky person of course like a little of my odd humor is going to get in there and I'm also happy that they find it funny and not too weird so. <laughs> <laughs> well but thank god for weird <laughs> seriously yeah. quirky weird I mean these are we are in a whole different world imagine oh my gosh all the mental illness that was created by the Victorian era and the late 1800s and all of these incredible strict rules of exactly how you're allowed to be. I mean, yeah. I'm very good at being weird. That's my that's my go-to thing. Nice, nice. So let's see here. You said it's character-driven versus plot-driven. Do you want to explain a little bit to people who are readers more than writers and maybe wondering exactly what that means? Okay. I had to clarify the, the definition myself, even though like that felt like, yeah, this is very character driven. Not only uh, is the plot driven by character choices, it's very focused on developing a character and getting to know them and empathizing with them. Are you expecting like a year from now you're going to be ready to actually release these books? I believe so. If we continue editing where we are, I think we'll definitely be ready by a year. But, you know, I'll be in touch. Hey, it takes time. Maybe spring 2023. Mm-hmm. You never Maybe, know. Yeah. Just as long as it's as it's nice and clean, you know. That's what I was worried about when you're saying like, you know, what are your concerns about the books? It's just I just want things to be consistent so people don't like send me like tweets going, they have an you have inconsistency right here, and I'm like, yes. thanks, mom. Uh mom, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, no. The it's funny. I get um sometimes I get literal advanced reader copies. They're called ARCs, and um and of course these ones have not gone to the final editor or person who's going to make sure everything's perfect and you're going along and I, I was just talking to someone actually earlier this week and I'm like wait a minute I was, I was like but she sat down already how can she sit down again and then I'm go back a couple pages read every single word yeah she sat down dun 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 she's sitting down again she never stood up ah and I'm like okay I'm sure they're going to catch that. She sat far, farther down into a lower down. she squished her butt really hard <laughs> I know. So yeah, um, and everyone out there who is going to self-publish, if you are going to do so, um, do far more editing than you think you need to do because the um, the traditional publishing world, there are, oh my gosh, the amount of time they put into their edits, the multiple times mm-hmm. they do them, and the final edit is a person who's outside who's never seen it before. Mm-hmm. You know, really it is possible to catch all those edits or at least catch 99.99999% of them. I have- I have a suggestion about that. And this also comes from book covers. Yes. Um, Sometimes I see self-published authors and they have, oh, a little sketchy um, book cover. And I'm like, oh, you could do better than that, poor Mm -hmm. dear. Go to your local college or even your local high school. I mean, don't go literally um, call them because they'll get scared. And uh, (laughs) ask for the art club or the art department and get a couple students together and they can make you a cover, give them the credit, maybe like a buck fifty and a ham sandwich. They'll they're hungry, right? And um, they'll make you a beautiful cover that will blow you away. That is I such a like, good idea. Oh yeah, they always need the credit, so um, they probably can go 
the same route for a book club or an English department in a college or high school. And I'm sure they'd love to edit your book. They're going to be able to flip that book open anytime they want and be like, look, look, I helped with this. That's nice. Sure. And they can also put it on like, you know, a resume. There you go. You're helping each other. Thank you, Kathleen. That's brilliant advice. You're welcome. I got one foot in the design world, one foot in like creative writing. This is where, where we meet. That's right. Okay. So yeah, actually, I do want to know a little bit more about how it was that you were found, ironically, through, I believe it was PitMad, which is part of the Twitter community experience. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Okay. Um, PitMad is a pitch contest that uh, you get to write, um, you get to pitch a book in a tweet, which is not an easy thing to do because you got a limited amount of characters and you have this book that you have to condense into the really juicy part so you can get attention. It's not always easy to deal with fantasy because boil down fantasy to the basics, it sounds a lot like everyone else's. So you really got to find the, the good bits that it's going to really stand out. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was part of this a Twitter competition, which basically consists of writing a tweet and using a certain hashtag and agents, agents right? Agents and publishers. And sometimes and editors publishers will search the hashtag. Yeah, sometimes editors too will will find your tweet and they'll like it if they find it interesting. And then you continue from there, you get their contact information. So I had written a tweet that I I had focused on what made my fantasy a little different is that there is a male and female platonic relationship. It's just platonic. And I focused on the fact that my main character is a little on the plus side. Um, and my publisher, Scarsdale Publishing, liked it. And it took them a while to get back to me. I had sent them, I believe, the first five chapters in March. And I didn't hear back from them until like the summer with a a request for a full manuscript and I thought you know this is exciting let's see what's going to happen and from from there they they sent me a contract and I was completely blown away I sent my I I got it on my phone and I read the email handed the phone to my husband and just slid off the couch with joy sweating (laughs) on the floor it's happening happening so I actually I don't have an agent I just work directly with my publisher which I find very interesting and I'm curious about how it's going to affect me down the road, whether eventually would I want an agent or will I just like to work with publishers as my, on my own? Um, so we'll see. It's It's been a, a very kind of, I felt like I had to be in the right place, the right time to get struck by lightning. Right. But maybe, maybe I'm not giving myself enough credit. I'm not sure. Well, there's a lot of people probably running around in golf courses holding up their golf clubs in the middle of a lightning storm and hoping to get struck by lightning. So, you know, you're lucky it happened with no effort. <laughs> well, okay. Lots of effort. effort. Lo- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you wrote the book. <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's so mm-hmm. awesome because you're right in the writing community, you know, that you get, um, you'll get hundreds, if not why I suppose possibly thousands of people sometimes involved in one of those pitch events. And I think they're fabulous personally because I gain so much from just trying to figure out how to boil my story down into a single tweet. And I feel like that mm-hmm. is good practice for me as a writer. But um, some people are like, okay, unless I get 10 people who want me to send them my full, I've failed. And so that's a big part of the world of writing is learning how to actually not take on a I have failed attitude and, and see yourself as always being on the road forward. 
That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much again for making the time calling in. And please thank your husband for hanging out with the two-year-old. <laughs> oh, he knows. He knows. Well, pass it on. And I will talk to you in about a year or so. Have happy writing moments. Thank you. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much. So folks, what you're going to want to do, especially if you've just tuned in partway through and caught the end of this and you want to catch the beginning, you just go to marchtwisdale.com, go to the podcast page, Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, and you're going to find Kathleen's interview. So go check out the bio. Contact information will be there.